everybody and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast. Today's interview is really special for me as I spent many years of my life as a producer working with Rock Sensations Helix and I am truly excited for everyone to hear my chat with singer Brian Ballmer. Because Brian and I have so much history together we easily went two hours into this and frankly could have gone much longer. So for the first time ever for me, I have decided to roll the interview out in two parts. If you love rock and have listened to rock radio during its heyday, or watched much music or MTV in the 80s and 90s, you will have seen or heard Helix somewhere on the planet. And some of that worldwide exposure is due to this anthemic song we all worked on together. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the Talk Music Podcast. Nice to be here, Tom. And you know, it's uh, really a huge thrill for me to go deep with you on your, I'll call it, illustrious career. And um, for those people listening that don't know our history together, uh, I certainly spent a lot of my early years in the music biz hanging out with you guys in studios and rehearsal halls and planes big and small, traveling here and there for mixing and recording. And, And you know what, Brian? I love pretty well every moment of it as they were. I'm looking for the right adjective here, and I've never sworn on the show before, but I'm going to go for it. Fucking exciting times we had. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we we credit you, Tom, with uh, discovering the band and taking us to Capitol Records back in the day, producing that first album. Same thing with Honeymoon Suite. And uh, they were indeed special times. We lived in a great time in humanity, let alone the music business. It was a time of freedom and... Um, It'll ever be duplicated. A couple of years ago, I was doing the golden age of Canadian bar circuit, and uh, that whole connection of bars uh, from coast to coast doesn't exist anymore, as you know, and it was uh, a great breeding ground for new music. Well, let me interrupt you there and give you kudos for also being what I call uh, an incredible road warrior as you've probably played every shithole dive bar in the country. <laughs> but you've also played all the big stadiums and venues as well. So you've kind of done it all. We have done it all. And I think you have to be born to the life. You either have to like it or... Right now I'm watching Yellowstone and I'm identifying with the Cowboys, right? Because I kind of felt at times in my career like I was a dying breed. Especially when I was out there in the circuit, you know, all alone in some... You know, hotel room of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, or that, and we just played to 30 people, right? It's an uh, awfully lonely feeling when you're that far away from home. I, I'm sure there's times we play for less, for less than 30. <laughs> Every time I've ever tried to uh, uh, drop out of the music bits of something, draw me back in, and I, and I believe that that's uh, God or fate or whatever you want to call it, um, yeah, guiding me through my life, and uh, and I haven't left, and uh, I've been very grateful for 
such a fantastic life. I met some um, amazing people. Well, we're gonna we're gonna go all over the place here, Brian. So just for the record, you know, I actually produced four albums with you guys. Do you do you remember that? <laughs> four capital albums. I did three capital albums, and then I did the one with uh, Mark Ribbler that we did together. So you know, uh, it's actually I wasn't kidding when I said I spent a lot of years with you guys because um, yes, we have a lot together there's three capital albums and then the one aquarius album and anyway you know um i was just thinking back to some of the work we did together and uh and you know frankly the songs in my humble opinion really have stood the test of time and uh i really think they're going to continue to do so in the next generations as th they're just great songs and kudos to you also for writing or co-writing most of them that's uh, your legacy there well, that decade of music had its own sound mm -hmm. and we got made fun of after grunge came in and uh, all that type of music started. But, you know, music changes every uh, five or six years. Sipe used to tell us that. And um, we had a very distinct sound during the 80s. And bands now are trying to copy that sound. If you look at uh, bands like uh, Steve Miller, Bob Dylan, yeah. selling their catalogs, uh, when they're spending like half a billion dollars in the catalog, you can almost rest assured you're going to hear classic rock music for the next 20 years because those people are going to want to get their investment back. Well, stop right there because you are approaching your 50th anniversary next year. I think you mentioned you're at 49 now. So you're you're not that far off from uh, from a lot of these uh, other legacy acts like the Steve Millers of the world. And uh, I want to just congratulate you on, on that because, you know, frankly, you deserve some kind of a touring medal, in my opinion, because... You also survived during the great times, but also the not so great times. And this is a crazy business, as as we know. And you've been, th I'm sure, through a lot of crazy times. That uh, you know, this is not a business that um, is is a straight uh, line. It's up and down like a yo-yo, frankly. Um, so again, I want to. If I had a medal, I'd give it to you for surviving so long. <laughs> Well, on that subject of, uh, you know, ups and downs of the music business, I tell all my students that you, if you're going to be in this business and, you, and you're going to survive, then you got to uh, approach it with controlled passion. And what I mean by that is that not every day is a big hit single, not every day is a big hit album or being on the TV show or doing that. Most of it's drudgery. It's talking to someone on the phone that you really don't want to talk to, yep. being polite. You don't really feel like being polite when you really want to tell the person to go, you know, take a hike. <laughs> go, you know where, yeah. And, but you have to go through all that mundane stuff too, but that's because running a band successfully is like running a small business and uh, you have to conduct yourself by the same, um, you know, economic perimeters and uh everything else that every other business has to operate under and that that, that has to go go to as you, as you know a lot of this business is personal contact and that hasn't changed with the internet no uh you know people still want to meet you face to face well nothing nothing beats that of course and even vinyl coming back i kind of predicted that because mm -hmm. people like getting a product where they can hold it and turn it over in their hands and I remember when I had vinyl, maybe it's just my generation, but I remember having the Steppenwolf Monster album, and uh, I looked at that album for forever, you know, because all these mice doing all these, like, uh -huh. okay. very anti-societal things on, on the cover, right? But, uh, you know, they were works of art, those album covers, and uh, that was all lots of CDs. Like, CDs was like looking at ant art. Yeah. Well, 
let's uh, continue to talk about uh, the past in a second, but um, why don't we start with um, what's going on with you currently? Because I was fortunate to just see you also just do a, a amazing live show where you played acoustically. And so why don't we start with what's going on with you and the band currently, and then we're going to uh, continue with, um, you know, all, you know, your career, which has gone on for such a long time that there's uh, lots of high points we're going to get to. And unfortunately, one major tragedy, which we'll also touch on just out of respect to uh, Paul Hackman. So tell me, Brian, what's going on currently with you guys, uh, like in the next while, just uh, fire away. Uh, this is the on season for us. Uh, from October to April, I'm down in uh, Florida. I live down there with my wife, Linda. And uh, I catch up on other things. Usually, uh, uh, festival days start rolling in around January, sometimes as early as December, usually January, February. And uh, you have your, your dates through the summer. And then at the same time, I'm trying to, uh, you know, hunt down a few gigs, maybe overseas. Sweden Rock. Uh, we've been to Rock Barcelona over there. Uh, uh, I think you have a date in Germany as well, I, I noticed uh, on your schedule. We're going to ha uh, Hamburg, Germany in September. Yeah, that's cool. China, I'm trying to experiment where I'm running a few of my own gigs. The acoustic shows that I did a couple of weeks ago were saw you. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. Our audience is getting uh, older, so I see them kind of as, uh, I hate to use them, just phrase kind of like bricks and mortar, like the, the festival dates are the bricks, and then in between are the, the smaller dates. Are the <laughs> okay. But my logic is because our audience is getting older, um, a lot of them don't want to be bombarded with 100 dB music, right? They, and, but uh, so, you know, they're much more open, I think, to coming and, and going down, uh, doing a little nostalgia and, and hearing how the songs came about and the history of the songs, or maybe just. Uh, uh, stories from that period of uh, Canadian musical history, like I said. So we're trying to fill it in, too, and just get as many dates as we can, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't see why you wouldn't be able to go across the country, and frankly, even, you know, other places as, as well, um, because the songs translate so well. You know, the mel melodies are, are fantastic, and so are the lyrics and everything. So, Well, the biggest constraint is trying to make money doing these things. Yeah, well, I, I guess you got to figure out the logistics and the finances of doing something like that. But I agree with you. There's going to be uh, certain audiences of, uh, let's say, our age that want to be pummeled against the wall still, uh, myself included. But I also enjoy the acoustic part. I, I love the fact that I could hear you banter about some of the earlier songs. And, uh, you know, there's lots of laughs. And uh, you're right. A lot of people were just enjoying themselves because it was toned down in volume. So I think I think there's definitely uh, it would be successful for you to to go ahead with with that yeah i enjoy doing those shows too because it's easier for me to sing when i can hear myself obviously <laughs> true but getting back to what i was saying it's harder to make money in these shows that if i'm running the shows myself and that's what i did with those two shows or i'm taking risk i don't really need to take a risk at my age right right now that i'm getting old but that uh you know i could quit tomorrow and probably do all right well, you look like you're in great shape, Brian, from what I saw on stage there. Like, good for you. Like, you must be working out or something. <laughs> I, am. I, I try to walk ten to 20,000 steps a day. Fantastic. But, uh, I try to, when I do these acoustic shows, because there's less money and there's more chance of, of failure, in other words, losing money on the show, because yeah. when you're doing them, you're not only, like, doing the show, but I'm, like, the promoter. I'm trying to sell you tickets. Do it. You're doing everything. Yeah, I get it. Pause it down. I'm doing everything, right? Yeah. Well, I have to be very careful when I do the shows because obviously you can lose ten, fifteen thousand dollars really quickly. So 
what I do is I take these shows and uh, uh, and say these two particular acoustic shows, I'll try to sandwich them between two festival shows where they're paying me, where I know I'm going to make money. Yep. And that way, if the, you know, if those two shows in the center go down, the other two shows on the other end, you know, kind of bookend them. And uh, so that's how I'm experimenting with these shows because I find there's a whole circuit out there, um, uh, theaters that run about, uh, you know, anywhere from 100 to 300 seats throughout Ontario and bands like the Mudmen, Steve Vardy, uh, Sarah Smith, mm -hmm. uh, Zed, they survive in those halls. Uh, but like I said, the prop mark's pretty thin, and um, so I like to put them in between. Yeah, well, I, I, I see it as just, just sort of do, do you do both where it makes sense? I mean, uh, I think there's an audience for both, for sure. Well, not only that, but I could also bring out my own show. I've got a couple of solo albums under my belt now. Well, tell me tell me now, let's move to the recording plans. You, you've done an a incredible amount of music uh, over the last 50 years. Um, are you still continuing to record? And if so, um, how is that going and what do you got coming up? Well, I got uh, I got a vinyl album coming out. It's uh, an album you worked on, actually. It was the uh, Business Doing Pleasure album for 1993, I believe it was. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> you know that was always supposed to be my solo album. Yes, I, I do remember. And because Paul passed away, it became a Helix album, which, you know... Yeah, we'll get to that later. Yep. That in retrospect, was... I think it was a mistake, right? Because in metal, people are very, you know, they want you to be a certain way. Anyway. Any new material you're working on? A lot of bands of your ilk, they either now go, well, wait a second, everybody wants to just hear all the old songs, they don't want to hear anything new, but then, you know, some of the bands just do it for themselves and the fans that are there, they still continue to record new music, even though it's, you know, it's, it's a tough sell out there for that. Well, first off, I write music for me. That's the right reason, too. <laughs> because if I don't like it, the fans ain't going to like it. Got it. Yep. And I got in this business to write songs. That was my kick when I was a kid. You know, the things I did when I was a kid, I still knew down as an adult. I made scrapbooks, I record songs, I write songs, I edit films. Those are all the things I did when I was a kid, draw pictures, yeah, write stories. So that never stops. You're going to keep going until the end. Uh, you know, unless I lose money, I don't see a reason to stop. Why would I? No, I mean, I don't mean stop. I mean, stop. You're going to always continue to write songs is what I meant. Like, there's no reason to stop that. Yeah, my hair is people to write with me right now i I've, uh, I've been writing with uh helix i got one song in the can mm -hmm. uh, i think just a long time just because every time we seem to get started some new disaster <laughs> okay i like the air outside today yeah i know <laughs> it's very hard to do too like uh you know like we're daryl right like he's he's working up in the peninsula he's uh the working musician. So logistically, you you have a hard time so, sometimes just getting everybody together to write because you like to uh, collaborate with people. Yeah, it's like herding cats. I mean, like you just get you get three guys lined up, all of a sudden the fourth guy can't do it. And you're, oh my god, you tear your hair up! And, well, eventually we get it together. Um, but this this new piece of vinyl I got coming out, there's actually two new, two new old songs on it. Okay. Uh, there are songs I wrote with Mark Ribbler. Mark Ribbler right now, by the way, he's the uh, music director for little Steven Van Zandt. Yeah, he's doing amazingly well. Good for him. Yeah, and, he, and he's just uh, worked on the last Van Zandt album. But uh, these are two songs uh, that Mark and I wrote back in the day and for whatever reason got rejected, right? So I took two songs off that album. I added two songs onto it, and the songs were recorded by Daryl. Mm -hmm. at uh, his uh, studio up in uh, St. Catharines. 
Yeah, so that album's coming out. And then I got, there's a couple songs we wrote through COVID uh, that have never been on an album. So they're sitting there, they're healing songs. Okay, so you have recordings coming out. Is that that was what I was getting at? You got lots of shows coming up. You got the acoustic thing going on. You got uh, overseas dates happening. You still got new music going on, and in your brain, you want to get that out. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's all good, and I look forward to all that. As as do all the fans. So let's go back to your beginnings, Brian. Where did you grow up, and when did you know music was going to be your thing? <laughs> I knew I wanted to be on the stage. I could tell you the exact freaking day. You can. Okay, go for it. Uh, I went to a Catholic uh, separate school. And it was in Hessen, Ontario. Okay. I went to Hessen School, and uh, at the end of every month, last Friday of every month, they'd have uh, Red Cross Day back then. And uh, they'd either draw pictures or... We'd have little skits we'd have to put together and do for the class and stuff, right? Anyway, there was a girl in my class called Bernadette Stemler. Okay, you remember her name. Okay, that's pretty good. I'm going to do a skit. She says, for the, uh, I'm going to be a doctor in, in Africa or something. You're going to be my my patient, right? <laughs> okay. I went, okay. So she put two chairs together and they put a friggin' sheet over me and stuff and I was up there anyway. I was goofing around. Yeah. And uh, all that class, because, you know, Catholic school, everybody's pretty straight. Everybody's laughing because I'm being a goofball, right? And uh, anyway, it was the most fantastic feeling uh, I'd ever had in my life. Oh, right there, that moment. Being the, the entertainer, right? My dad came, he picked me up in his, this Chevy pickup truck, right? And my dad was, like, you know, hardcore far farmer. Mm-hmm. I'm in there, Dad. You wouldn't believe it. Oh, this is like, it was incredible. I just like couldn't, you know, stop talking about it. my dad's going like, "Shut up!" Got chores to do when we get home. He didn't really want to hear me talk about it, but you know, I, that was the moment I knew. Wow! Right there and then. Okay, that's amazing. So you knew you wanted to be an entertainer. Yes, and I'm very lucky that I that I didn't know because a lot of people go through their entire life and they never know what they want to be. But I knew at a very early age. I was like you know, six years old. And, you know, some of the most negative things in life, too, become the most positive. I was a very loner of a kid. Um, that surprises me. I had acne. I was overweight. Uh, you know, I mean, I was, uh, my, my dad never went anywhere because my family was so poor. And so I was like a, a very socially backward with the other kids. Quite surprising considering you're extremely extroverted and you've always had to be doing this kind of career. So that's really surprising. Well, I, I didn't become really, well, <laughs> I was always an, an extrovert and, and that I had to be like the center of attention. And I realized I even looked back at the, the home movies when I was a kid, right? And we'd like, yeah, maybe like a movie of my mom and my dad. Suddenly there's me running across the screen, right? Like waving. And were your parents supportive of you pursuing the fact that, you know, you knew you wanted to be, let's say, an entertainer? Or was there pushback from them? Well, yes and no. My parents were never really in the Like, my dad was never really into music. I guess my mom used to sing this for her kids. It was more my grandfather was in the music, but uh, I remember like I used to milk cows by hand when I was a kid. So, but but how did you how did you find music to listen to? Were you go, going to like the the radio and just you know? I, listened, I used to listen to Sea Joy Radio out of London, Ontario. Okay, I had the, the radio was up above the beam <laughs> okay. uh, where I milked yeah. the cow. 
So you're there milking the cows while you're listening to Transistor Radio with a tiny little, tiny, tiny speaker. That's right. I'd be singing along with the radio. My dad be yelling from the other end of the barn. He'd go, shut the F up or you're born in the effing city or what? <laughs> okay. And then my brother, who was a smart ass, he yelled some other part of the barn. He'd go, yeah, we were born in St. Mary's Hospital in Kitchener, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> my dad gets mad. I didn't give a whack in the back of the head. So, did you take formal singing lessons when you were when you were younger and growing up? Is that how you got into vocals? How did you, how did that happen for you? No, I went to a Catholic school and uh, were you in the choir? Well, what happened was it was a uh, it was a um, initially a, like a a two a one room schoolhouse, right? Yeah. Or two room schoolhouse rather. And they made a, a third room, and then they had like, you know. So while they were doing that, we had to go to school at, in the basement of the church across the street, St. Mary's Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a teacher named Inez Hayde. Mrs. Hayde said to me one day, we were singing, right? Yeah. And she said, oh, you have a very uh, uh, masculine voice, Brian. And I thought that meant <laughs> you have a very good voice. Right. You know what masculine meant? But masculine ended up being really good. <laughs> well, then after I got out of separate school and went to high school, I had Jerry Fagan as my music teacher. Okay. Was he well known? Well, Jerry Fagan ended up being down in London, Ontario. He's famous down here. He grew up a couple blocks from Tommy, Tommy Hunter, which is only a couple blocks from where I am right here. I took a picture of the house actually yesterday in the sign. Okay. Uh, but uh, he's from the same neighborhood, Jerry Fagan, and he was my music teacher in Listowel. And Jerry won first at the Kiwanis festivals every year. Like Listowel would clean up. He got hired by Fanshaw down here in London. And then became famous as the uh, conductor of the Fanshaw Singers. He just retired last year. I see. But he's well known in this area, Jerry Fagan. Okay, so so he was uh, one of your vocal instructors, kind of choir instructor. Choir instructor, so sort of a choir mentor. Really taught me how to sing, voice. Like, see, I, I, I sang before I ever had vocal lessons, right? Yeah. But the problem with doing that is, a, you never find out the potential of your voice, and secondly. Uh, most singers, especially rock singers, because they distort their sound, end up getting nodes or calluses. And, and so I unfortunately developed nodes very early in my career, about 1976, when we were doing our first album, Breaking Loose. Mm-hmm. And um, Sipe sent me to uh, Ed Johnson, who uh, was a voice coach who taught out of a basement of a church in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and everybody went to Ed for vocal lessons. Copper Penny, Major Hoople's Boarding House, Jerry Brown, uh, Cinema Face, uh, Jesus, what's going on? Red, uh, Red Green, Edward Bear, uh, Larry Avoy. And uh, so I went to Ed, and I never forget it. To put his arm around my shoulder and said, didn't, You didn't get these things overnight. It's uh, you're going to have to be patient, do what I tell you to do. And so I started studying from Ed Johnson. And he taught me the old Italian method of uh, singing called bel canto, bel voce, beautiful voice. Yes, which which for those people who don't know, you you've uh, been a teacher also when you've had time to do it for many many years. So you, and you're you, obviously you must have some incredible background to pull that off, which you're just mentioning now. You've had some some great uh, formal uh, lessons on how to sing properly. Well, I wouldn't be singing nowadays if it weren't for, for it, 
Okay. I want to just start, you know, talking about your actual career uh, when you started Helix. So take us up to the formation of Helix, uh, since we now know, you know, where you grew up, how how you went to um, Catholic school, etc. We know a couple of your mentors. Take us to the formation of Helix, which I think you started in 1974. Yes, I, and it all started in high school. I was in a little, my first little band, right, uh, called Homegrown. Uh, which is ironic because none of these guys smoke pot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they wouldn't know a uh, joint if it jumped up and bit them in the ass. Okay. Uh, but anyway, um, I was in a, a band called Homegrown, and, and uh, the uh, drummer, uh, who was uh, by the name of Kevin Webster, he entered us in the Battle of the Bands competition at the Central Ontario Exhibition in uh, Kitchener, Ontario, which was run by Sherwood Music. Okay. So we went down, we entered. And uh, we did miserably. In fact, okay. I, I, we, we were such hicks, and I was the biggest hick of them all, uh-huh. that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there the night before. We went down a day early to see other bands and stuff right in the tent, and I'm sitting there, mm-hmm. and I'm watching this band. Uh, oh, they must have brought in a professional band to show everybody what to aspire to. And then I realized it was the competition. Wow. I thought... We're gonna look like idiots up there tomorrow. I just kind of couldn't get it out of my mind, right? Because I'm like, compared to these guys, we're like, we're like they were the big city guys, right? Right. You were the hick. You were the hick band. We did it anyway. And at the end of our show, I, was, I felt humiliated. I was like, my face was on fire, right? Yeah. Anyway, at the end of it, uh, this guy Bruce Arnold and, this, and Ron Watson came up and they said, "Look, if we like you and the keyboard player, you want to." join our band. I said, well, I'm moving down here to work at Snyder's Meats anyway. Okay. I said, sure, let's try it. So we got together, and then we, uh, we formed uh, the Helix Field Band. What? Helix what? Helix Field? What's that mean? Helix Field Band originally. Okay, so that, so then you got rid of the word field after a while. Yeah, Saibi made us do that. Short it up. Okay. And then um, once Saibi came aboard. And how, did, and how did he come aboard? Well, we bombed at every gig we did. And then how did you do? How did you attract Bill Sipe if you were bombing in all your gigs? Well, Sipe <laughs> so. worked as an agent down at Dram, which which is the booking agency in Waterloo. So Bruce Arnold was the leader of of the Helixville band, and uh, Bruce. Uh, wanted uh, Bill to come out and look at the band. And Bill's just, I don't like, well, look at that band. They bombed at every gig that I've ever booked them at. But Bruce was friends with a guy named Rich Muldaisy, who was a dance convener at uh, one of the uh, local high schools. Mm-hmm. And Rich uh, Muldaisy said to Sipe, he said, look, it. he said, you go see Helix up at the Twin Gables Hotel up in Lustral, Ontario. He says, I'll book major hoopals, and Sipe was going to make a, a good commission off of hoopals being booked into this high school. Oh, I get it. Okay. I said, okay, I'll do it, right? So he played up in Listowel at the Twin Gables, mm-hmm. and uh, Sipe came up, and he fell in love with the band. He took me aside, and he's going, I'm going to have you guys play in the States in one year, and <laughs> I can see what this band's got. He was like pumped. Wow. That's exactly what you want for when you're starting to get rolling in your career. And when the thing was, we were in the, we did play the states one year. We played Gippsland, a place called the Underground, it was the first U.S. state we ever played. Okay, 
Okay, so that's how Bill Sipe and you hooked up at that gig, and you obviously must have uh, improved because you were bombing before that, apparently. So you must have actually played pretty well that night, or or Bill saw a lot of potential in in, in where you guys could go. Bill, Bill, Bill had a background himself as a musician. He was in the Poverty Train, which is a rock band. For those of you that have no idea what the hell I'm talking about with rock band versus show band, I'll explain it to you, because back then it was a common thing when you played bars. A rock band play rock songs, play stuff like Cream, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, stuff like that. The heavier stuff, Lord G, Music Afro, stuff like that. Look like a bunch of hippies, right? Yeah, yeah. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, and they made shit money, right? And they played the crappy uh, B circuit, C circuit. Now, the show bands, on the other hand, they played all the A rooms, places like the Water Tower. Show bands, on the other hand, they played top 40 material they all dressed in the same suits mm-hmm. uh, they choreographed moves so think about it think about helix think about the two types of bands what did we became we became a hybrid of the two because Sipe was in both and he, what he did was with helix it was brilliant really he uh had the, the rock part of us which was you know we felt to our core because we were all rockers but he also he took the, the best parts of the show band thing and he incorporated that, that into the, the Helix show, and he got something very unique, not seen in Canada up to that point, that's for sure. And then it was his idea, too, I would I would assume, to uh, make your first independent album, which was Breaking Loose, followed by White Lace and Black Leather. That was probably him. Uh... Honestly, that was my idea. Oh, was it? Okay. Now I can remember the exact day that happened, too. Because that ended up being your calling card, actually. Um... Well... We used to have weekly meetings, and that was a great, great idea because it helped us iron out all our problems. We had a meeting. I don't know where the hell we were, but we were outside in the long grass, sitting there. We had to take notes and stuff, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And um, we used to, the way we used to go around a circle, and everybody bring up points or things they wanted to talk about, right? It It was like a little therapy session. Nice. Anyway, it came around to me and said, I want to write an album. Okay, who's going to pay for that? Yeah. And so he said, okay, well, let's get a game plan together. And that was it. It was as simple as that. And then we went to, you know, his parents and my parents and uh, Brent's parents. And you pulled some money together to to make it happen. And then we wrote an album. And um, the first album had uh, uh, the hit Your Woman Now in the in the state of Texas with Joe Anthony out of Kiss K Mac and us. And uh, also Chris Johnson at Emerald College. We did a four dates down there. But actually, our first date was at the YMT and Dave Men and Caddy. Mm-hmm. And I was in Lotus just outside of San Antonio. It was great. We came home. We were like heroes. Texas was the place to be. Texas was sort of the the place, probably in the entire world, to break a band at that point in time, particularly a hard rock band. Well, it was all because of Joe Anthony. Yeah, it was Joe Anthony, for sure. And he became famous for that, so... Well, Joe Anthony played uh, African-American music when it wasn't fashionable to do that. And then he played heavy metal music when it wasn't fashionable to play heavy metal music. 
He broke tons of bands down there for sure. That yeah, I mean, yeah, he he was amazing as far as getting bands going. So, you know, I think I then stepped into the picture. Uh, I think I've met Bill at Meetem, if I'm not mistaken, because um, that was the uh, conference held in Caen, France, every year, and I think that's uh, where we just hit it off. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's accurate, but I think that's where I met Bill. And the next part is a little bit fuzzy for me, and I'm not sure if it was me or Bill or both of us that got you a deal with Capitol Records, but I I do remember that I also think we were turned down uh, a few times first before we actually scored the deal. Well, here's how I remember. We started doing demos at your place down the base when we used to record and you had the board up in the living room. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're rolling. I did that with Honeymoon Suite as as well, the same exact thing, yeah. I had three tracks recorded in your basement, by the way. Do you? Oh, that's cool. I'd love to hear that one day. Uh, What tracks do you think they were? you remember? Well, it must be from the first album, I would think. No? No? Heavy, Heavy Metal Up, no? Check out The Love. Oh, check out the love. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. White lace of black leather. Ah, oh, I remember those. Yeah, I'd love to get 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 that from you one day. And one that was never released. That's cool. When the fire is hot. That's cool. Then when you got your capital deals, because I'm fast forwarding a bit now, um, and we were turned down, as I said, a couple of times. Um, I remember we had a pretty good budget to prove ourselves, and so we did right away with the album No Rest for the Wicked. And I believe that was released in 1983. I could feel a little bit before then. So what happened was I turned it down by every label except Capital and Aquarius. Mm-hmm. And it came down down to in the office and uh, finally we said, shit, get off the pot. So we were sitting at the office down in Waterloo and we got a phone call from Aquarius and they bowed out and Capital signed us. At that point, uh, Dean Cameron, who was talking to David Munz from the uh, English side of the company for me and I, Munsey was pushing for us too because Munsey knew that we were getting uh, um, ink and sounds and uh, Kerrang! magazine with Mark Putterford and sounds and uh, uh, Paul Suter and, and Kerrang! And Iron Maiden was just breaking over there, and so was Judas Priest. And he saw the potential. Of, he saw us as, you know, Canada's heavy metal band. And so he was, you know, he was tight. Well, he was instrumental in making this a worldwide deal, for sure, 100%. It was you and and Bill, and it was everybody working together. But that's how that whole deal come together. And I believe the first advance was thirty five thousand bucks. And the funny thing was, I think it cost us thirty thousand US to get on the Kiss tour. Any thoughts on that album and how it came together? As you know, it was actually our first gold album together. And uh, I remember we did it at Phase One Studios in Toronto, and then we went to New York and we mixed it with uh, Tony Bon Jovi. So any. Uh, and who happened to be the John, John Bon Jovi's cousin. Power Center, the Power Station. And he was the owner of the Power Station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most happening studio at that time. So so it all really came together. So, I mean, any other thoughts of that uh, that uh, era of that album? We went on a Western Canadian tour right before that album was written, and uh, we, we were writing all the way out. We were writing like one or two songs a week, and every one of them was crap. And the last week before we came home, we were in Thunder Bay and we wrote No Rest of the Wicked, the song. Right. And um, it was the second try actually at it. I wrote that song with Mike Buzelak and uh, yeah. the first version we never used. And we tossed her out and we wrote another version for the song and it stuck. Well, then we just started like 
literally shitty note songs like um we wrote uh, never want to lose you on the roof of the uh, um quinty hotel <laughs> in trenton ontario yes i remember you saying that uh, and then we wrote uh actually check out the love is written down in the bronx in new york when we did a little ill-fated tour down through new england there that was the first oh okay yeah i like that song actually quite a bit yeah it's a good song uh dirty dog was written out in uh, um uh, uh, Port Stanley at the uh, Lakeside Hotel. Uh-huh. I actually got it on film. I was writing that song. Oh, that's cool. Uh, what else? On there? Heavy Metal Love is written at the Queens Hotel out the seat. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about Heavy Metal Love for a second because um, I think it exploded on MTV uh, at some point. I think this is because the U.S. side of Capitol Records got involved with the band, which. Uh, probably was because of David Munns, as we just spoke. And that was sort of remarkable at that time. No, no, no. No? They got involved because we were signed the American label. We were never signed Canadian label. Well, that's true, too. That's a big point. Glad you brought that up. But that's why they were involved. And that's why, that's why Cameron got assigned the American part of the label, I think. Yeah, no, that that, that was key. Because there would be more money for the project and everything else. He would take more interest. Well, they did. They they took immediate interest because getting on MTV was, was massive, massive. And then Mel moved down. Remember, they lived out in uh, Long Beach or wherever the hell it was out there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this was all because of the U.S. side of Capitol, yeah. But uh, anyway, so Heavy Metal Love broke broke out, and um, that was a band's first success. Because of the video. Well, yeah, it was because of the video. Damn right it was a video, because the first year for MTV, there were, they had no videos. And I'm sure that was much music around then? They had no videos, so they had it. We were, we were like, we went to heavy rotation on MTV. We were pulling in, um, we were pulling in places like Washington, D.C., Never been there in my life. Honest to God, there was lineups a, a block long, and chicks that wanted to have sex with us all day long. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I'm glad you're mentioning that. That was that time period where you, you could be a star overnight, literally. Like people would start mobbing on the street and go, I just saw you on TV. It was incredible. And you could have sex and not have your parts fall off. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't for your time. But, you know, the power of TV was incredible, but it was that, it, it was, we were one of the few videos out there. That video only cost 25,000 bucks out of 26,000 bucks. It was nothing. No. By the time we got to Rock View, there were 120,000 US. Oh, I know. They escalated big time by that time. Um, so what tours were you on? Uh, remind me, after that first record uh, with Heavy Metal Love, what tours did you get on? We started out in the States with Blackfoot and Molly Hatchet, and that fell apart after three dates. <laughs> Why, you blow them up stage? Well, I don't remember that happening at no. all. Sometimes, sometimes you get kicked off a tour because you're too good. You guys were kicking serious ass. Uh, I mean, you guys were, were amazing live band, and you still are. It's all in the era of the beholder, isn't it? But uh, it was a, it was nice playing with those guys, Dan, Danny Joe Brown, uh-huh. who's okay. dead now, and also Ricky Madlock, who was a you know he's in London Skinner now. Um, no, I have the most respect for those guys, right? So I can't so three three shows with them. 
Who else did you play with on that tour? On those tours? Well, after, after that tour fell apart, Sidney wanted to keep us down there no matter what. We were touring out of a friggin' van and sleeping in the damn van. Of course. You were paying your dues, Brian. Awful. <laughs> well, yeah, but we were staying there. We weren't getting a hotel room when we got in. We were staying in the friggin' van. Sleeping in the van. Wow. No, that's rough. I remember one morning I woke up and I had a cheesy stuck I indented <laughs> in my chin and and another time I got up and accidentally drank the orange juice, which turned out to be, you know what. I can't imagine how stale the air was, too, in the morning. I can't imagine. Anyway, uh, when we were with ICM, so they put us on with Motorhead on another perfect day tour. And it was anything but. They had uh, Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy playing guitar for him. He was just an absolute jerk. Okay. Uh, and and like, totally out of his mind and drugs and alcohol. Like Too bad. Uh, you know, yeah, watch the guy because he constantly want to fight you. Oh, uh huh. Okay. Um, but but uh, Lemmy and I, uh, you know, Lemmy was great. That tour started in Hartford, Connecticut, if I remember right, and it moved uh, westward and it ended up at uh, Prince's Club in uh, First First Avenue Club, Minneapolis. Okay. And then after that, the ICM put us up with several heart tours. We were out with everybody from Marshall Crenshaw to Greg Kinn to Michael Bolton in California. That's Michael Bl Bolton and you guys together. That I can't see. Those were our first dates in California. Michael Bolton, we played. Um, what a mismatch. At the Keystones in Palo Alto. Uh, well, back then, Mike, Michael Bolton was more trying to do the uh, Bob Seeger thing, right? Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, so we played the Beverly Theater in down in Los Angeles or Hollywood. <laughs> we played. Uh, uh, um, uh, the uh, Keystones in San Francisco and Keystones in Palo Alto. Okay. And he was a nice guy, too. I really got along with Michael Bolton. <laughs> okay. I remember there was a doctor who used to follow him around with a great big makeup case full of blow. <laughs> okay. Well, that was standard in those days. I don't think for him, Michael. I just mean it was his doctor. Oh, the doctor. Okay. Because I remember I, mean, yeah, I went <laughs> okay. to the bathroom one day, right? And there's this guy, right, standing in the urinal. He says, hey, you want something? He's got like this. Well, that was the era of blow anyway. It was everywhere. Yeah, that was that's the for era sure. Of blow, yeah. Everywhere. Okay, Brian. So let's let's move to the next album, "Walking the Razor's Edge," which which really blew up and went platinum pretty quickly. And of course, it's because of the song "Rock You." So you know, I still remember kids coming in from my wife's school to do the gang vocals for the chorus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that song, and it obviously worked like a charm. So. What else do you remember about how that song came about? And I think you guys didn't want to record it in the beginning, I think, because it had the word rock in it, if uh, I'm not mistaken. That's right. We already had a couple rock songs, right? And, of course, we go, well, I got too many rock songs, right? Right. I remember you and Bill Toxin to uh, recording the song, which was a really good thing we did that. But um, sure. well, I, I think that um, in one way it was a, the best thing that probably ever happened to us because it became our signature song. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, you know, people tend to peg you uh, for the song that becomes your hit, and we didn't write that song, so, you know. Oh, I know, I know. Not that anybody really cares, Brian. People generally don't care, I find. Like 1% of the of, of the population might, you know, go, oh, wow, they didn't write the song. Nobody else gives a shit. Um, but I don't think nowadays, because of the Internet, people are much more aware of music and even old stuff. And, and But because back then the logic was you could, you could pick a song, uh, like, for instance, when we did Dream On, which was a Nazareth song, mm -hmm. uh, Daryl knew the song because he was from Ireland, right? But uh, people here didn't know it. 
that, you know, we didn't do the song. Yeah. But now, yeah. because people have the internet and YouTube and stuff like that, there's much less chance they don't know the original song. Well, uh, yes. Uh, and, and before we leave the cover part of making uh, writing a song, I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell you just quickly, before I started this podcast with you, I couldn't remember who wrote Rock You. And you know what? It, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, and it doesn't matter. I couldn't remember if it was even you guys or not, which which leads me to my point that it doesn't matter. It just sounds great. Your name is on it. You perform it every night. It doesn't matter. Thanks everyone so much for tuning in to part one with Brian and myself and make sure to tune in to part two as we go deep on some of Brian's darkest times during the band's history. He talks about how he ended up working at Hasty Market after playing concerts around the world and having double platinum albums and he was almost mistaken at that time for a criminal which would have put him in jail for a long time. He also talks about how he survived when grunge hit and how he somehow managed to keep the band going when other bands fell by the wayside. I think it's a really interesting episode, so look for that coming up soon. Thanks again for listening. Bye now.